Well, there's absolutely no question that we are influenced by where we live. For example, some people have pointed out that if you live in Colorado, you know that uh, teenage boys wear shorts 365 days a year. <laughs> you recognize trust fund hippies. A 14-er a is part of your vocabulary. Replacing your windshield once a year is normal. Uh, anything below out 8,000 feet is low elevation, and you don't even understand what a year-round neighbor means. Also, if you're from Texas, some have said your favorite food is Whataburger. Y'all is just about in every sentence. You cannot drive in snow, as we've all witnessed here in Colorado. <laughs> you understand that spit stains from chewing tobacco on the side of a pickup truck should never be cleaned off. Driving is measured in hours, not miles, and it's okay to fly only the Texas flag, if you wish. Wish we had more Texans here today. I'll have to get back to that this summer when they're here. Well, indeed, where we live or where we are from influences who we are. And as Americans, we understand that competition, free speech, equality, self-help, independence, education, laws, and being politically correct are all generally shared values. And as I thought about our shared values, it strikes me that there is one that is generally missing from our vocabulary, and that's imperfection. As Coloradans, Texans, from whatever state, or Americans, I'm not so sure that imperfection is something that we value or embrace in any way, and I think that's too bad. I continue to learn and understand the beauty of imperfection, the grace of imperfection, even the gift of imperfection. One of my late mom's cherished possessions was a teacup. It wasn't uh, fine china, it wasn't beautifully painted, it wasn't perfectly round, its, it's top is not even, even, the colors are not uniform, and on the surface this cup looks like something that a child would make in an introductory pottery class. But my mom cherished this cup. It's from Japan, and it was a reminder to her of something called wabi-sabi. Maybe you've heard of it. Wabi-sabi is defined by one person as the Japanese value of seeing the beauty of imperfect things. One Japanese tea master writes what wabi-sabi is about. He says, it's not a full moon, but a moon covered partially by clouds. It's not new symmetric objects, but old and asymmetric ones. And he goes on to say that when, as human beings, we sit together, however flawed and imperfect we are, we have the opportunity to catch a glimpse of the beauty of imperfection. Another person notes that the relentless pursuit of perfection in possessions, relationships, and achievements often fosters hasty judgment. Wabi-sabi invites us to pause. It opens up space. For seeing the beauty of things flawed, including ourselves and our fellow human beings, when we embrace imperfection, there is relief, a release from being a hostage to perfection. As I've thought about wabi-sabi and I've looked at my mom's cup, and despite the fact it's a Japanese concept, I actually believe that it is a God-given idea because you and I, when it's all said and done, we're created by God in the spirit of Wabi-sabi, we are all imperfect, in fact, perfectly imperfect, and that is beautiful in the way that it's supposed to be. 
Today's gospel reading is from the end of the Gospel of John. It is such a great reading. It is so rich and full of take-home tidbits. And in this story, we hear about the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples mentioned in the story after his resurrection. And let's take a look at the story for a moment and what's within it before we get back to Wabi Sabi. There are two parts to the story. In the first part, Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James, John, and two unnamed disciples decide to go fishing in the Sea of Galilee. And we know that this roughly seven or eight by 12 or so mile lake was the scene of a lot of activity and fishing was the centerpiece. As a brief aside, fishing we know in those days was an integral, integral part of the economy and fishing and the fishing business was complex with very heavy taxes, exploitation of uh, laborers, the rich getting richer off the poor, and this in no way was a romantic profession. You see, ultimately a lot of money flowed from the hands of fishermen up to the Roman emperor himself. Now why Peter and the boys decided to go fishing at that time, we are not told in the story. For some reason, despite having seen the risen Jesus, it was back to fishing they went. The text from our reading says that they went fishing at night. And uh, just as another little aside, that was the custom then because the only material available for nets in those days was very visible to fish in sunlight. So fishing was done at night when it was dark. Now, although it does not say this, I have to wonder if Peter and the fellows went fishing because it was what they knew best and it would have been like going home again. I know in my own life and in the lives of many that when things are uncertain and scary and unpredictable, as it certainly must have been for Peter and the gang, it's comforting to go back to what we know and fishing they know. Again, the text doesn't say that, but I wonder if that's part of it. And after a long night of no fish, the sun begins to come up. And while they did not know it was Jesus, Jesus on the shore yells, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. And Jesus said, go out and cast your net again. And for some reason, they followed Jesus' advice, again, not knowing who it was. And suddenly they had more fish than they knew what to do with. And one of the guys on the boat suddenly recognized it was Jesus who was standing on the shore. And Peter got so excited, he put on clothes and jumped into the lake and swam to Jesus. As an aside, I have found this scene to be very funny, almost like something you would see in Monty Python's Life of Brian. But I am projecting because this was not funny to Peter. He was serious. He likely was scantily clad for work, wearing typical very light fishing attire, and so perhaps he put clothes on to be more presentable. Who knows? We're not told. Well, anyway, the other disciples followed Peter to the shore, but in the, uh, but in the boat, and when they arrived, there was Jesus cooking fish on a fire with some bread. Jesus said, come on and have some breakfast. And Jesus took some of the fish and bread and then gave it to them. Now, this part of the reading today is just layered and rich, as I said earlier. It is such a great example of how God will, will take the nothing we are experiencing, like the net, the empty net, and turn it into something we could not have imagined. It's a great reminder that when we feel all is lost because of circumstances or events or people, that God will work to bring about healing, hope, direction, and even abundance, even if, even if at first all we see is an empty net, so to speak. The story of the empty net turning into a full one, I think, is also a beautiful echo of that first Easter morning 
On Easter, the nothingness of death is followed by the fullness of eternal life. Well, anyway, after that breakfast, in the second part of our story, Jesus is with Peter and begins to question Peter. Jesus asks, Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Jesus says, feed my lambs, and then asks, Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Jesus says, Peter, tend my sheep. And a third time, he says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, you know I love you. And we're told that Peter feels hurt by Jesus' questioning. Jesus then says, feed my sheep. And then alluding to Peter's own eventual crucifixion, Jesus tells Peter that rough times are ahead for him, but in the meantime, to follow him. Now, there's a lot going on here, and I just want to touch on a few things. As Jesus did over and over and over again before his crucifixion and following his resurrection, Jesus once again makes it clear that love is the foundation of following him. Love is the centerpiece of life. It's as if Jesus thought Peter and the others would get sick and tired of hearing about love that he understood that his followers would want to add on more to Jesus' love command. And I wonder if Jesus talked so much about love to his followers and to Peter in our reading because he anticipated his followers might say something like, love, love, love. Is that all you ever talk about? Love, love, love. There's more to it than that, isn't there? There must be. Can't Jesus talk about something else? But Jesus, I also believe, makes it clear to Peter that extremely difficult, painful, and tormenting times are ahead for him. And that despite what people will do, his only response must be one of love, just like Jesus on the cross. Some people think that this part of the story is about Jesus getting Peter grounded again after Peter denied knowing Jesus before his crucifixion. You may remember that Peter denied he knew Jesus three times before Jesus was nailed to a cross. And here Jesus gives Peter three opportunities to turn it around and get back, focus back on Jesus. But despite all of this and all the layers and the tidbits we can take from our reading, there's something else going on that I think is really important that we can miss. And to get involved in this, and to get into this other thing, we need to look at the people involved in our reading. So let's look at them. Peter. Peter who denied he knew Jesus at a critical time. Peter, who took a sword and whacked the guy's ear off. Peter, who tried to tell Jesus to change his plans and do something else. Peter, who, when attempting to do what Jesus asked instead of trusting, was full of fear and sank into a lake. Peter, who wanted to build things at a very inopportune time. Peter, who fell asleep when praying was really important. Peter said, Jesus, there's no way you can say you know what you say you know. And how about Nathaniel? We don't know a lot about Nathaniel, but we do know that when he first heard about Jesus, who was from Nazareth, he was very skeptical. Nathaniel said, referring to Jesus, you're kidding me. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? What a put down. Then there's Thomas. Thomas, a person of faith who would not believe something unless he was able to see it with his own eyes. Thomas, who would not believe unless he could see tangible, undeniable proof. Thomas, who would not accept something unless he could touch it. And then in this story, there were James and John, the brothers. Jesus called them the sons of thunder because of how they acted and behaved. They were known for causing a ruckus. 
They are the brothers who asked Jesus if they could have a very special place in heaven next to Jesus. A little bit of ego talking, I'd say. And then there was the time they asked Jesus, can we bring fire down from heaven and take out these people we don't like? They weren't very happy, neither was Jesus, about what they had asked. And while we don't know anything about the other disciples mentioned who were there in the story, just think about the characteristics of the fellows I just described. I think it's really marvelous that Jesus relied upon depended on and chose to start the Jesus movement with such a perfect, without any flaws, set of people. Of course, the opposite is true, isn't it? All of his father followers, without exception, everyone who carried on the message of Easter, forgiveness and love, were imperfect. And I'd say beautifully imperfect. And as I thought about this, it got me wondering, if we choose to follow Jesus, why on earth would we ever seek perfection in our own lives in any way? If we choose to follow Jesus, why on earth would we expect perfection in another human being? It's not what Jesus was looking for then. And it's not what Jesus is looking for now. You see, when we think we are perfect, there's only room for ourselves. The good news when it's all said and done is that you and I were created in the spirit of wabi-sabi, the spirit of imperfection. You see, when imperfection is not only accepted but embraced, we make room for other people and we create space for God in our lives. God does not want us to ever be critical of our imperfections or those of others, but rather to celebrate the beauty of them. I love what one person writes. This person writes, perfect? Nah, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. What a great saying, because I would say, it's in our cracks that God gets in. Imagine how you and I might feel about ourselves. Think about how we might view others. Envision what life and our relationships would be if we not only accepted imperfection, but embraced it, celebrated it, and savored it as the place to most intimately connect with ourselves, with other people, and with God. I'm beginning to learn that imperfection makes life rich, wonderful. Tasty. So it's my hope and prayer for each of us here today that if we struggle with it, that we'll learn to cut ourselves some slack, for goodness sakes. That we'll learn to see the beauty of our own perfections within ourselves and within everything that lies beyond our own skin. And finally, keep in mind that it is in the midst of imperfection in ourselves and in others, that we are given the moment-to-moment -moment opportunity to do the hard work of love, because it's in the space of imperfection where the rubber meets the road of loving. Loving others, loving ourselves, and loving God. Amen.